Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. This is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Bertolin Mesco, the medical futurist, looking at how science fiction technologies can become reality in medicine and healthcare. He's a geek physician with a PhD in genomic and an Amazon Top 100 author. He's one of the top voices globally on digital health technology and the future of healthcare. Bertolin has delivered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of keynotes for governments and organisations including Harvard, Stanford, Yale University and NASA. He's been featured by dozens of top publications including CNN, the World Health Organisation, National Geographic, Forbes, Time Magazine, BBC and the New York Times. And now, of course, Talking Health Tech. His website, medicalfuturist.com, has had more than 5 million readers and he is one of LinkedIn's top voices in healthcare. He's a member of Mensa International and has been selected by the Huffington Post as one of the 30 biotech thinkers with the biggest global impact. He also does a bunch of other stuff and you get the picture. Dr. Bertolin Mesco, how are you going? Thank you. I'm really fine. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. No worries at all. Look, uh, look, you're the real deal, man. So I really appreciate your time coming on um, and I'm really keen to, to get stuck into a lot of things. So let's just get right into it. Hey, look, um, what does Dr. Bertolin Mesco do on a day today? If it's a good day, then I spend most of my time doing research. We, we focus and work on a few papers about different aspects of how artificial intelligence will be used in medicine and healthcare. Um, if it's um medium quality day, then I spend some time uh, writing articles and focusing on speeches. And it's uh, if it's a really challenging day, then I have to reply to hundreds of comments and, uh, and opinions about AI's role and whether it will replace physicians or not. And I keep on fighting against bias and, and just um, not reliable uh, insights. So I try to be the policeman of digital health in the online world. Maybe that's how I structure a normal day. I've seen you refer to yourself as that the policeman or Trump, kind of like an unbiased, uh, you know, uh, adjudicator or, or something along those lines. But you know, a lot of it's been around the AI and machine learning and deep learning space. Um, that's 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 really what that's you know I've read a lot of your your stuff at least more recently. What, what does all that mean for healthcare now, in your opinion? I think the 2020s will be about whether we can see a, the real role AI can have in the future of care. So for 2000 years, what medical professionals have been doing is we've been trying to gather data, obtain data, answers about the patients. We examine them, we ask questions, and based on that data, our experience and the knowledge that we have gathered along the way from medical school to you know decades of working as a physician, we came to conclusions and we made decisions about diagnosis, decision-making, um, treatment options, so we tried to give an actionable plan for the patient. And of course, that's, that's, that, was the, that has been the only way we could do our job. But based on the, the huge amounts of data we have about patients, and we also used to have about patients, it's physically impossible to analyze all those data sets by yourself or just by being a human being. Therefore, I think AI is not going to be a, an advanced stage from which we can perform and we can practice medicine better. But this is finally the kind of tool that physicians need to be able to do what, why they became physicians. And, and that's not analyzing data and doing administration in 60% of their time, but it's caring for patients. And if an, an algorithm can analyze vast amounts of data for me, so it can support my decision-making a bit more, then I think it's quite clear that 
not just I win on the bargain, but also patients win because they get better decisions. Obviously, we cannot make the best decisions on their on our own. Maybe that's the most important aspect of AI. And there is so much hype. Uh, you also described that around the topic that it's it's really challenging now to to see the real evidence-based applications to make sure that companies don't say that they use AI just for the benefit of or the chance to get more investment. And um, it makes sense these days to to be like a policeman who tries to get the meaning and the context out of these changes. Mm. So, so how, do, how do you... How do you find that out? You know, like I, I read all new kind of health tech solutions coming out, or even even more traditional ones, I guess. That it, that it's the um, everyone's doing a data play. You know, AI is so hot right now in inverted commas. I mean, how do you, you know, as a as a doctor, I guess, or as a physician, you know, even as a patient, I guess, anyone has anyone. How do you how do you determine whether uh, something is a is a, is a good use of AI in healthcare, and what's a I guess a bogus or a bad use of AI in healthcare? If the question is whether something is good use of AI, then fortunately we don't have to rely on ourselves because that's that's why we have evidence-based medicine in place. If something has studies as a background, it's if a, if, an, if a claim from a company is backed by uh, evidence-based studies, clinically independent clinical trials, and so on, the, the same way we have been evaluating devices and algorithms before, then we can use it. If there is even if it sounds like the the most beautiful and perfect solution for a healthcare problem, but it's not backed by evidence-based data, we simply cannot use it. So this, still the evidence-based aspect is the one that determines whether something is a good use of AI or not. But I think that's that's quite, quite obvious. But the real, the really hard issue here is to make sure that when we read about an, a deep learning or machine learning-based medical algorithm for a medical or healthcare purpose in a study, whether we can really get the meaning of it, whether we understand what's going on, whether we can evaluate, whether it's a study well-designed enough to make sure that it can address real patient needs. This is the real challenge. And I think there's a huge niche where which are, we are trying to fill, of course, with a few upcoming papers, that phys- physicians need a very um, simply digestible, understandable guide about artificial intelligence. We cannot expect every medical professional worldwide to understand deep learning networks at their core because, you know, a few thousand programmers do that, not us. We we learn and know enough about other stuff that, that we have to be good at, but we need to understand at least the basics. And if we, if we get to that stage where most of physicians at least learn about these methods and what they are about and how to evaluate just the basics of these methods in studies, in medical school, and we teach it at our medical school at Semmelweis University, then we have a chance to make sure that when a company claims too much or overhypes something for the sake of investors, Mm. then, you know, we will smell something and we will know what to say and how to evaluate it. Mm. Hey, back to that point about clinical trials then, because, I mean, that... That's logical and makes a lot of sense, but research and clinical trials take a long time, and technology moves at you know the, at a much faster rate these days. Is 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 research catching up to to be be meaningful again to like modern technology? Do you think? I think we have to be objective here, and uh, we have to say. I mean, I have to say that it's it's getting there, mm. but it's far not as fast as it should be. But again. Um, 
we have to be cautious here because digital health and the whole AI era, it, they, these changes have been only around for less than a decade. Yeah. Before it took decades for evidence-based medicine to to catch up, mm. uh, to be able to address real-world needs. When the first stethoscope came out in the early 19th century, it took the French physician, Dr. Lenek, almost three decades to get the message across because <laughs> no one wanted to use a hollow wooden tube as a first gadget <laughs> in by practicing medicine. And now, you know, it's a symbol of being a physician. Yeah. So. Uh, it takes time, um, but it's getting better. And now, if you look at the last two, three years of just, just, just the number of studies that try to evaluate deep learning and machine learning based yeah. algorithms for medical and healthcare purposes, it's really getting exponential. I just published an infographic a few weeks ago, and it's it's getting there. But I think that's not the the challenging part that we need as many studies as possible. The challenging part is that policymakers need to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. And it's it's really challenging for us, like me, a futurist, it's really challenging to, to be ahead of the curve. So imagine what a policymaker need to know about these changes because patients will, and also physicians will, will require them to, to make these technologies available as soon as they become, you know, commercially available, but it's, it's a really hard thing to do. Mm. And the FDA has only approved about 40 or 50 AI-based algorithms so far, which would be, um, I said only 40 or 50, but if you think about the last decades of developments in medical technology, it's, it's a huge number mm. to reach this number in about three or four years. And obviously from now on, you can expect like that many algorithms to be approved every year. Mm. So there are good examples. They are catching up, but it will never be as quick as it should be, mm. because when you are a patient with a in a vulnerable state needing a, a solution for your health issue, and you know there is a technological solution, but it's not approved yet, you won't care. Mm. You will try to reach out and and get that solution. Just like how the that's that's the that's where the we are not waiting movement stems from. Patients who knew that the artificial closed-loop pancreas system is a technological possibility, but the the first regulations they had to wait for the first regulations for years. Right. So in that time frame, they started making their own. And I'm not saying that's the that's the solution everyone should choose, mm-hmm. but I perfectly understand them, and I would do the same if my life or the lives of my loved ones depend on that sure. technological solution. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Hey, look, to, to look from a patient's perspective, like to continue on, that, continue on that train, there's so much data that you can measure today, like on your health. So, so as a patient, I guess, depending on your appetite, it could be overwhelming or it could be, I guess, really exciting. Tell me, for patients that are keen to get a better understanding of their health using data and metrics, what, what, should, they, what should we be measuring and, and what tools can we use these days to, to do that? I hope you don't mind if I describe my personal experience from the patient side, because uh, for I want you to. That's that. That's why you're here, buddy. Let's for, do it. <laughs> for a decade or so, I've been I've been trying to be the patient from the future, uh, trying trying to use those technologies that I think most patients will have access to soon. And even being a being a physician, it has been uh, it has been a complicated issue to get meaning out of the huge data that I have. So I've been tracking my sleep, I've been tracking my exercises, running sessions. Uh, I've had a whole genome sequencing service, and I also had six different genotyping genetic tests, and I had about five microbiome tests. And um, I'm quite a geek myself, so um, I can analyze <laughs> data. I'm, I'm I'm familiar with data, but when it comes to your health seeing those huge data sets, 
you need a physician's help. So I teamed up with a, a great primary care physician and, and now we together design preventive plans for me at the beginning of every year based on my measurements and data and genetic tests and my age and the new studies coming out that, that uh, she keeps uh, looking at. And it's still not easy. So first, it's, it's a normal thing to feel anxiety about the, the amount of data you can see about yourself because, you know, so far we haven't seen anything. If, if, you, if you have been a geek yourself, maybe you did use a variable or a fitness tracker, but that's it. It, it has been not part of everyday healthcare for a patient to measure anything about themselves. And now it's a technical possibility. I, I only use four or five senses, but I'm sure uh, I, I generate gigabytes of data every month. And I, I can't even look at all of them and analyze all of them. And even with my GP, it's it's a long process to make sure we get something clinically useful out of the data. So first, it's okay to feel anxiety about that. But second, I, I know that I have a choice as a patient. And I know that I want to have a chance for a longer and healthier life. And without data, it might be possible. But I cannot be sure about that. With data, I think my chance is much, much higher. So... Maybe that's the, the kind of loop that patients get into, or it's more like a learning curve than a loop. Yeah. Uh, first, it comes with anxiety, and, and you get lost in the amount of data that you have, and then you find out what which parts, which you know detailed components work for you or mean anything to you. For me, sleep tracking has turned out to be far the most useful thing in my life. I have a smart sleep alarm, so I wake up very early in the morning, but from light sleep, not deep sleep. Yeah. You know the difference? You know, waking up needing five cups of coffee just to, just to feel alive yeah. or waking up feeling energized for the day. It might be two minutes between the two, but you can't tell because you're asleep. Yeah. Well, my speaker can do that. So that has been, that has turned out to be far the most useful thing. Yeah. Uh, and also my, my whole genome sequencing service, learning the major mutations I have and the, the definitive risks I have for certain conditions or future health events has been really useful. And uh, now we designed the preventive plan based on the data we learned from that. Uh, but it doesn't work without a medical team. And in this, my medical team is not just uh, a bunch of medical professionals around me, but it's also my family members, my genetic counselor, my personal trainer, my primary care physician, and so on. So the medical team has become uh, something different than it, it used to be. It, it expanded to cover more aspects of our lives. Hmm. And, and so the tools that you use to measure all this, is this, is this accessible stuff that, that you can buy, you know, just as a consumer? Like are we talking like Apple Watches and kind of, you know, usual kind of gizmo-y things or, or are they more kind of um, heavy-duty stuff that you've got access to? I, only, I decided to only use technologies and services that are available uh, worldwide. Yeah. Therefore, um, whatever I use... Um, it's not a case that, you know, only as a futurist or a geek physician, I can get access to it, but anyone can get mm. access to those. I've used many services which are for free, like uh, Prometheus, uh, I think a great service for uh, analyzing your raw data from the genomic testing services you used. Mm. It used to be free, now it's like $5 for a complete analysis, and they don't give you reports from a genetic counselor, so it's on your own. But even my GP and my genetic counselor used the, the analysis I, I obtained from, from ETA. So it's a, 
it's a selection of services, but I tend to use only those that, that anyone can access for advice. Got it, got it. Yeah, I've got a really cheap uh, sleep tracker that's got a smart alarm. It's it's called one of my three small children that come and hit me on the face and wake me up. It's not very smart, actually, but it, uh, <laughs> it's... <laughs> I, I have a three-year-old daughter, too, and, and she did wake me up this morning, but <laughs> still with, with, you know, crying kids home or uh, travel schedule or jet lag... I, I, I'm, I'm certain that I can still get the most out of my sleep sessions just because I know what tiny details make it worse or yeah. my I have the list in mind that I know I can do to, to make sure I get the most out of it. Maybe I should try harder. I just assume it's all out the window then for the next, you know, 10 years for me because of sleep. But I've, I've, that's good. That's given me motivation. Hey, look, we'll, um, look, ne- ne- next one. Look, you're, you're all the way on the other side of the world, which is really exciting. You're in, you're in Hungary at the moment. Yes, I'm in Budapest, right? I'm in Budapest. Amazing. Look, I can tell you all about the Australian healthcare scene and, and how the adoption of technology is going here, but 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 that's not why you're on the show. I, I don't know a great deal about, um, you know, your end of the world. Uh, like, I'd love to get your perspective on on healthcare in uh, in 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 Hungary or Europe uh, more broadly, and, and the appetite for uh, for better technology and medicine and and healthcare on that side. So, if you could tell us a bit more about that. Um, absolutely. The way I, I look at this, and I've, I've been I've, I've been traveling the world for more than a decade now, almost every week or so, mm. and I've seen systems with socialized medicine like like ours in Hungary. I've seen systems with private insurance. Um, the, the 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 major trend I see that's still overlapping across these networks and countries is that healthcare is becoming globalized, mm. which means that. I might, it might be a bold statement in 2020, but I think I have a better chance for a longer and healthier life based on my access to technologies that make me the point of care hmm. compared to the healthcare I receive from my country because I live there. Wow. Uh, the one I am trying to, to create here, the kind of healthcare system for myself is of course customized to my needs. It's based on my own data, uh, which I own. Um, I get access to services which might be based in different countries. Just give me one example, and it has happened in my in um, I've seen I saw a patient uh, uh, that worked who worked with a company, and it happened to him. And what happened was he sent a cancerous tissue sample to a Belgian startup because that startup sequences the DNA of uh, cancerous tissues. So he submitted the sample. He got the sequence back. The sequence and the driver mutations his cancerous tissue had were checked uh, in in, an, in a cloud-based database on Amazon, so in a U.S. server, and they found clinical trials that were open and only invited patients with that specific driver mutation. And the clinical trial took place on a Spanish island by a French pharma company, and the company for patients, and they, they gave them really precise um, targeted therapies for free because they looked for such patients for the clinical trial. So we traveled to the Spanish island and received the clinical trial for for uh, lung cancer. Um, that's how healthcare is becoming globalized. It's not even about a huge amount of money. Those services really didn't cost anything compared to what I've seen, yeah. like prices in private insurance systems. But he, he really didn't meet many physicians in his own healthcare system in the country. I'm not saying that's the that's the purpose of digital health, but digital health does make patients the point of care, and it comes with a few benefits, such as making healthcare globalized. Such a powerful message, and like you say, it's it's bold for 2020, but it's such a, a strong vision to have. Um, that's quite empowering. 
That's good. I like it. Look, um, you know, I've seen as part of the medical futurist, you you, you look at a a lot of a lot of things. You know, you, you firsthand, you 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 try them out, you try these devices, you you review, and 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 sometimes you're, you know, if you like something, you like it, and if you don't, then you will also let let the world know that you don't like it. What what are some of the um? They don't have to be good or bad. They can just be different. What are some of the most out there sci-fi bits of tech that that um that that you've seen? And or what are the ones that you think will make a big impact on how healthcare um, will will be done in in due course? Wow, uh, I've tested about 150 services <laughs> and devices so far, and when when a cl- company claims too much, mm. I, I smell something, you know, by the email. So uh, we have a quite clear uh, review policy on the site, you know, transparently published. That we are we are trying to be objective. We have we never accept sponsorship any kind of in any kind. And if you like something, we say we say it out loud. If we don't like something because that's uh, medically not reliable, mm. you'll also claim it because that's that's our job. Uh, the one there are a few things that that made me feel like science fiction is becoming real. Like when a company called Nima sent me uh, food sensors. And one was able to detect gluten in my food, and the other one was able to detect peanut. And these <laughs> the, the detectors are designed for um, people with allergies. What do you do? Do you just do you point it out, or what do you do? Like, what does it look like? You have to put a tiny amount of food sample that you have on your plate into the device, and in about one and a half minutes, it detects if it has gluten, or the other device detects if it has peanut in it. <laughs> yeah, right. Your plate might still contain, you know, details of peanut on it. Not just a sample, but yeah. it's. I think it's a great step forward, and I, I really loved using that. Yeah. The other one was uh, from uh, from Clarius. I used an ultrasound device that was connected to my smartphone. <laughs> and back then, I, I I couldn't decide whether I would like like to be a radiologist or a geneticist, uh, and it. it felt like going back in time and becoming a radiologist. Of course, it's you know, not the case, but it, using your smartphone and, and on the other hand, an ultrasound device and scan the patient and have the analysis on your phone and it's AI-based, so it's, it's really advanced. That felt like science fiction is becoming real, like the medical tricoder from Star Trek. And the third one was a very simple device. It's not even an electronic device, just a, a plastic, uh, but it's called um, um, IQ. Uh, like IQUE, yeah, okay. and what it does, you have to attach your phone while the app is running um, to the device. You look into it, and it does a visual test in about uh, two, three minutes, and it's quite accurate. And it just it benefits from the the fact that so many of us have smartphones, so you don't have to provide the electronics in the device yourself, but you just put your smartphone onto a device and you a visual test and, and it, it blew my mind away. Also, I used a, an app called Skin Vision. I had a great fight with some people uh, about a week ago when I mentioned that uh, I have a high genetic risk for uh, skin cancer, about eight times higher than the average population. So I get checked out every six months. Yeah. But I really want to live a long and healthy life. In the meantime, I once a month, once every two months, I, I recheck some suspicious lesions with the Skin Vision app that uses machine learning algorithms to, and it, they, they keep track of my lesions. So if something changes, um, when I took a new picture, they let me know and I can get that checked out by a physician or I take the image with me to my dermatologist and we can check it out together. Uh, so th- these things that, that bring something out of everyday medicine into my home, into my hand, and give me the, the vision that 
this is how we are becoming the point of care, or this is how physicians using these technologies can make their patients the point of care. That's pretty awesome. And look, you didn't even know this about me, Bertalan, but uh, I, I'm general manager for uh, MetaOptima, who would be like a major competitor to Skin Vision um, during my day job. So the, 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 the skin analytics using artificial intelligence is certainly uh, um, uh, uh, not just a hot topic because that's that's what I do on a day to day, but also being an Australian, two out of three Australians get skin cancer, and and everyone knows someone who's had a lesion removed or been impacted by skin cancer. So I think technology is certainly going to be uh, uh, an important part in that journey for for everyone globally. And I'll have to send you the video of our uh, derm drone, which is a, a drone which flies around a patient and does a full 3D yeah. body scan in three minutes. But uh, wow. that, that'll be another story. Isn't it obvious that, that we need to use these algorithms? Totally. You, you can't expect everyone to go to a dermatologist every few months or, you know, once a year. Yeah. And many of us have these genetic risks we don't even know about. So why not using algorithms, which of course won't give a diagnosis, but they'll flag those lesions you have to know about and get rechecked by a human being, a medical professional. Mm. For me, it's such an obvious step forward that uh, I always, I'm always surprised when I have to fight people online. I, I don't start these fights. <clears throat> they they um, start fighting against me. <laughs> saying that these algorithms are useless and they have not been proven. Of course not. Uh, there are some independent studies, but these things are so new that it could still take years to see mm. how accurate it can be. But I, even though, let's say there is an algorithm and there were five independent studies and all of those claim that the algorithm is not accurate enough, I'm pretty sure that it's for now. These algorithms learn so fast and can, but when we check how deep learning learns like um, AlphaGo, you know, the case of any two-player yeah. games, it can play millions of games against itself in the morning and become the best player in that game. How can someone think that these algorithms will not excel at the, the simple task of detecting a suspicious lesion and letting the patient, uh, allowing the patient to let their physicians know that let's check this one out? Uh, for me, it's so... Yeah, yeah, and and the articles are there too, and and they're and they're starting to appear. You know, there's there's a Lancet article that that features one of our algorithms as well. It was an independent one. We we weren't even involved with them. We kind of found the the article by by someone else making us aware of it. So it's good to see these things, and it's not just in the, the dermatology space. It's in in all other areas too. Something that was interesting too is like the, the use of phones in in healthcare. So. Um, obviously, it makes it makes sense for you know more patient centric healthcare or, or or providing patients with the ability to to take more control. Do do you see a place for more phones in say the consult room where a doctor's because you know I mean the, the typical set up for a, for a consult room to have, uh, I guess, in inverted commas technology or, or, or really um, impressive technology. It was a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of big machinery that, that made, you know, voot, voot noises. Um, but, but now, nowadays they're, they're, there's more powerful devices with, with better solutions, but they're just sitting on like an iPhone 10X max or something. Um, but to a patient initially, that can be quite jarring if a patient, you know, whips out their phone and, and provides a consult and then wants to charge you if it's a private billing consult or something so do you think that's going to be a, a, a like just part of the norm as, as time goes on or is there going to have to be some kind of middle ground somewhere you think for some patient doctor relationships it has been the norm already so when i when i go to my gp she knows that um, i'm an empowered patient and i i want to dedicate time effort uh, and anything else to to have the chance for a long and healthier life so of course i measure some data i log a few things like you know, blood pressure once or twice a month and such things. 
and she knows that I won't bring those on paper, which she it's it's harder to analyze. But I I send some things to her in advance before I go, and then I bring my phone and I show her what things I've measured. Mm. And she she told me that I'm one of the reasons. I mean, I mean, she didn't know me when she became a physician, but she told me that I'm I'm the, one of the reasons why she became a physician back then <laughs> to be able to have an impact a positive impact on patients' lives for a long period of time. And with me, as I'm trying to contribute, and with my knowledge about myself and with her knowledge about her expertise, we could bring these things together and, and create a preventive plan. And that's why we launched um, uh, a campaign last year. It was called Ask Me About Digital. And it was about just a badge that, pay, that physicians can put, uh, primary care physicians primarily, on their doors. And the, the, the badge said that just... Come in, come in here and open your phone up. Because, of course, I know that you measure some things and you have to know I can help you with those. Mm-hmm. So we try to bring physicians who can help their patients with technological questions and patients who already use such technologies closer together just by improving their communication a little bit. Because there are many, many patients I know who are using these things but are afraid to ask about them because they might be disencouraged or sent away. And there are many physicians who could help their patients with such technological questions, but you know, they have enough on their plate already to bring this topic up mm. in the next doctor-patient uh, meeting. Yeah. So such simple things can make sure that patients feel encouraged, that you don't have to understand all the data that you measure. That's why you have a physician with expertise. Yeah. And, and physicians have to know that not all medical decisions uh, and the responsibility related to that is on their shoulders, but it's a shared decision-making process and they can rely on their patients and, and vice versa. And that, that's how I think these technologies can help improve the doctor-patient relationship. Amazing. Look, you know, if I was a doctor going through medical school now, that, that, that all of that would be some pretty good advice that, that, that I'd want to take on board about what the future of medicine might hold. Is there any other advice you'd give to a doctor going through med school now about what the future of medicine might, might look like for them? When I teach medical students and um, the, the major things I try to transmit to them as, in, in terms of messages is that uh, AI is not a threat. AI is going to be your biggest friend if you know how to use it. I have a line saying that um, AI will not replace physicians, but those physicians who use AI will replace those who don't. <laughs> and, and they must cherish this line forever because that's how they will work. And all of them will work with some forms of AI. I, I guarantee them that. The second is they have to have digital literacy, which means in the digital jungle, they have to feel like at home. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they have to know everything, but they have to feel like at home. So when I ask, I, when I ask my, my GP a question about uh a Fitbit sensor I use and the analysis he did, and she didn't know the answer. She told me, let's sit next to me. Let's find out together. So she, we went online together. We looked for the information together, and that's the right attitude. Nice. That they, they can say that they don't know, and that's all right, but they have to know the methods, how to get that information yeah. that they need for a better medical decision. And the third is that if they really want to be physicians, then I guess the major reasons for that need to be to, to be able to provide empathy and compassionate care for their patients. And right now, as an, uh, an average physician does administration in 60% of their time, uh, they are not going to be able to do that. But if they use the right technologies, then they give it, get a chance to, to do why they became or why they are becoming physicians now. And I think if they keep these three things in mind, no technology will surprise them in the future.
Totally, totally. Hey, look, to wind things out, Bertalan, if I was to do one thing after listening to this, what, what should I be doing? Um, I hope you go on medicalfuturist.com <laughs> because we spend so much time trying to provide context around digital health and artificial intelligence. And we provide everything for free from instructional videos um, about RFID microchips, 5G in healthcare, AI in healthcare, and so on. We provide articles uh, twice every week. And every day I provide analysis on all the major social media channels about news announcements. Um, we are trying to be objective, but we are, we are quite optimistic about digital. So uh, it's my job to to uh, try to keep us objective in the long term. But if, if that's like one next step anyone can do, I would really appreciate it because that's how we can get the word out to more and more people that, that, that digital health technologies can make patients the point of care if you do it right. Love it. Look, there's some super high quality content that you've got going on uh, on the website and, and it's all over my LinkedIn feed all the time and I really enjoy it. So Bertalan, I really appreciate your time on the podcast. I'll put all your details in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go check out the website, contribute to the forum, listen to other episodes and get in touch with feedback about the show because collaboration starts with a conversation. Speak to you next time.